Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Well, tonight, the book of Revelation, session 12, introducing the seven churches. If you guys are just joining us, either online or in the room tonight, we are taking a, uh, a good long look at the book of Revelation. We are going through the book of Revelation theme by theme, and currently we've got a hundred sessions planned for the book of Revelation, theme by theme. We're on session 12 tonight. All the other notes and MP3s are available on our website if you want to go check out any past sessions. But our desire is to get this book that, that many say you can't get it. Say you can't understand Revelation, you can't understand the end times, it's too hard. It's totally not too hard. You just got to go slow enough that you can understand it. And so that's what we're doing is we're going to go slow enough that we can actually make sense of the book of Revelation. And so that's what we're doing in this study. And uh, I invite you um, to uh, just continue on with us, especially if tonight um, is helpful. So as we jump into the notes, and again, we'll uh, do a time of uh, group discussion after this and then a little bit of Q&A at the end. As we jump into the notes, I want to talk a little bit about the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Last week, we introduced... The, uh, the, the context of these letters. We talked about these seven letters that were written to these seven churches. We talked about what does it mean that they're letters and who were they written by, who were they written to. Tonight what we want to look at is we want to look at the cultural landscape of these seven churches. We want to talk about what did it mean to be living in the church or in the city of Laodicea. What did it look like to be living in Sardis during this hour of human history what was kind of the, the, the landscape, the political, the cultural, the spiritual climate? What, it, what was it like to live in this hour? And I want to give you kind of a, a general overview of what it was like to be living in that, uh, you know, Greco-Roman culture at the time, Greece and Rome having significant influence uh, in that culture. I want to give you kind of a little bit of that, and then we'll talk about each of the seven churches and some of the nuances uh, of these churches. You know, again, if we just read through the Bible and we don't ever stop to pause and think about what we're reading or why or the implications, it's just information. It, like our hearts are bored. We totally miss the point and, uh, and it's, it never impacts us. But especially as we're going through Revelation, we want to go slow enough that we're able to get the details. So that's what we're going to do. So first of all, here in uh, part A on, the, uh, on page one, these seven churches we're in a Roman cultural context, not a Jewish cultural context. So, so much of the Bible, when we're reading the scripture, we're reading about what's going on, it's mostly written to Jews that were in a Jewish context, that thought like Jews, that had mom and dads who were Jews, who, who had cultural practices that were Jewish. That's not what's going on in these seven churches. These seven churches are primarily in a Roman context, not a Jewish context. So, what does that mean? Well, one, it means most of these uh, believers were Gentile believers, not Jewish believers. They were those that didn't grow up with a rich church history. They didn't grow up with Jewish roots. They grew up lost and pagan and Greek. And they got saved somewhere in the context of this generation, for the most part. And the ideas of Christianity were still so new uh, to their uh, cultural context. So they don't have the, the Jewish history. Look at this uh, verse in Acts. Just giving a little bit of some of the context of this hour of, uh, of the Greek culture. Acts 17. I see that in every way you are very religious. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. This is uh, Paul talking to uh, those that were, I believe, in Athens that were, he was describing, you guys just worship everything. You worship anything you can find. If something is big and strong and cool looking, or it's got a myth or a legend, you know, if any of you had somebody win a battle in war, man, you just turn them into a god and you start worshiping them. You worship everything. This is the cultural context. It's not a, 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 a monotheistic society like, you know, the, the idea of the, the Jewish uh, belief that God is one. He, he, he's the Lord. He's the only God. That's what we believe. Well, it's not what their culture believed. Next, rampant idolatry. An idolatry of every yucky sort, okay? So it wasn't just that they believed in different gods. They actually, their lifestyles were built around worship. 
So you've got all these demon gods being worshipped. Lots and lots of them. And some of them with the most foul forms of practice. With sacrifices, even human sacrifices, all sorts of immorality. There was so much going on. And this was the normal practice. So like when you got, you know, if you're in this culture and you gave your life to Jesus, all of your friends that didn't give their life to Jesus, they're in like the most like ugly, yucky forms of, of demon worship on a regular basis. And it's what they talk about over lunch. This is what's normal context, normal culture for these seven churches. That Jesus is writing to these churches. He's writing to the believers in these churches. These believers are the minority for sure. And it's not just the minority. They're in a cultural context where everything is so foul and and fully embracing uh, all manner of, of worship. Like Acts 17, here it is again. Uh, just a, another, you know, couple of uh, uh, windows into this culture. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Full of idols. So you're walking down the street, idol, 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 I, full of idols. He was greatly distressed in his spirit. Now, this wasn't Paul's first non-Jewish city to be in. But the more west you went away from, uh, from Israel, the worse it got. The more idolatry there was, the more, uh, the more Greek thought and Greek culture. First uh, Peter 4, 3, talking to a group of believers that this was their background, he says, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. This is now Peter talking to people who were who are coming out of that culture. And he's saying, I know what life looked like for you. It was intense. And your whole lifestyle was filled with these things. This is the cultural context these letters are being written into. An oppressive Roman government, top of page two. The Roman Empire was not at all happy about the rise of Christianity within its society. The rise of Christianity was very conflicting. Uh, against it was it was a point of conflict and derision in the midst of a Roman rule as a social at a social level the teachings of Christ threatened the very fabric of Roman culture Roman economics Roman practice Roman theology I mean Christ was the worst thing to happen to Rome in Rome's mind because you've got this established religion with a little bit of zip on it that's now invading the various cities and it's it's saying that everything that is Roman at its core is wicked, evil, and should be repented of. This is a real problem for Rome. From a governmental standpoint, the teachings about Jesus challenged Caesar's authority. They challenged him as the supreme king, as the god over the empire. I mean, this is a very violent thing to be a Christian in this hour. Because of this, Rome responded violently back against the church. And widespread persecution swept through the empire. Here's a verse in Acts 19 talking about part of this Roman response. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way was uh, an early term for Christianity. They, they called it uh, following Jesus, following his way. They called it the way. It was almost actually, it was a bit of a uh, snide remark. Like, oh, you're a follower of the way. You know, it's just, they didn't even want to name it as a religion. They just like called it the way. I mean, it was very kind of passe and, and, uh, and uh, demeaning. And the Christians like, were like, yeah, it's actually, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We'll roll with it. What you are calling, you know, a bad thing, we'll totally embrace that. Okay, so here's what happens that actually even winds up getting these churches this far west. Uh, again, the seven churches that are written about in the book of Revelation here, they're on the western coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, so it's some hundreds of miles kind of north and west, northwest of Israel. How did these churches even get there? They actually got there because of the persecution. The persecution in Israel, which uh, Israel under this time was under Roman rule, but it had a profound Jewish culture still. There was still significant cultural impact of Jewish roots in Israel. But the further you got away from Israel, the less those is Israel roots were, the less the name of Jehovah even made any sense. The next, I mean, it, the, the, the Jewish law and the synagogue system, the less those had any place. Well, 
We've got here, because of the persecution that was so widespread, what was happening is the believers that were in the persecuted areas, which again, it started in Israel, they started to scatter. So actually, the persecution is responsible for the expansion of the church in one of the most primary ways. So in, in one way, you're like, well, the Lord works for the good of those who love him, doesn't he? The Lord wanted the church to scatter, and if he had to wait for voluntary missionaries, the missions movement would have gone a lot slower. So he kind of helped things along a little bit, permitted this wild persecution in order for believers to not feel safe in their hometown. So they ran away. and Wherever they went, they were still a Christian. And then they won their neighbor to Jesus. And now you've got a church in that city that never had one before. And the way that church got there was because there was a persecution back home. So just, I love the way, the, the cohesive way that the Holy Spirit works together to establish and build the kingdom. All right, I gave you a couple of verses there. On that day, great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then they went even further. Acts 11, it says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message to the, only to the Jews. And so here, just part of the, uh, the scattering process. So these churches, in part... Uh, not, not entirely. Some of it was uh, Paul's missionary journeys. But these churches and the expansion of Christianity kind of as a whole was actually jump-started by persecution. All right, now, part two, I want to look at a few of the phrases that were repeated again and again in these seven uh, letters. I'm going to skip over the first two parts because it's really review from last week. But I want to get down to part C, I know your deeds. Top of page three, if you will. I know your deeds. It's both really, really comforting and altogether terrifying that Jesus to all seven churches says, I know you. I know your deeds. I have intimate understanding of that which you have done and that which you have not. That's really comforting to know Jesus is like with us. It's also so scary to think that Jesus knows that he's been taking notes. I mean, intimate diligent notes about the activity of the church and the individuals in that church he starts off ever he, not he didn't start off he includes every in every letter when he gets to this time where he starts to transition and talk about their specific realities he starts it in all seven letters with i know your deeds that is just such an intense statement he's paying attention to the trends in their congregations He's paying attention to the heart responses. He sees both the individual and the congregation. I just want to tell you something that is a bit of a forgotten art is us seeing ourselves corporately before the Lord as well as individually. We've been taught very much an individual mindset. I have a relationship with Jesus. But we don't often think about us having a relationship with Jesus. The entire New Testament addresses corporate relationships with Jesus. And very little, not none, but very little individual relationships with Jesus. Although it, we all have individual relationships with Jesus. But we've so downgraded, we've so forgotten the art, the reality that we as a church have a destiny before the Lord. He has purposes for us. And so the congregations of the saints that we see in the New Testament, whether in the letters to the seven churches or the, the letter that was written to the Colossians or the letter that was written to the Philippians, you pick a group. There was a corporate relationship. There was a corporate destiny. There was a corporate response. And there was a corporate Jesus writing down the deeds of that church that he knew well as a congregation. It's just so intense. All right, next uh, line about these, uh, these churches. All seven letters, all seven churches. Again, one letter per church. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. All seven, he says the phrase, he who has an ear. He who has an ear, let him hear. And that term, so important, Jesus says it all seven times. It's, in fact, this is another just kind of a fun little fact. Jesus says that same term seven more times in the Gospels. So seven times in the Gospels, seven times in the book of Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's Jesus' kind of, uh, uh, you know, waving a flag and drawing attention to the following. He's saying, I'm about to say something very important, and I want you to pay attention. And if you'll really meditate on these truths, 
If you'll do more than just casually hear what I'm saying, but you'll tune in and listen, the Holy Spirit will give you additional revelation. You will gain greater revelation. You'll be able to flow in a greater heart before the Lord. You'll have greater clarity. Your spirit will come alive. I'll give you stuff if you really pay attention to what I'm about to say. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's Jesus' banner statement Pay close attention to what I'm about to say. And he says it to all seven. Well, the second part of that phrase or that statement, because he says it, he says the same phrase uh, to, to all seven. It's he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I want to focus on that, those few words. What the Spirit says to the churches. What the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. Jesus is saying, I want you to pay attention, not just to what's important to you. I want you to pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is communicating to the churches in the earth, to the churches in your region, to the churches in this hour. And it's an interesting point that while each one of these seven letters was written to a specific church, all seven were told, hey, I also want you to pay attention to what I told the other churches. I want you to pay attention to what the Spirit of the Lord says to the churches, not just what the Holy Spirit's saying to your congregation. And this is a, a kind of a universal principle that we want to catch. These churches, it, it's like, well, which churches? Oh, just the seven. Oh, okay, so then Antioch, if they caught a hold of this letter, nothing that they could learn from it. Whatever. These, were writ- these uh, words of wisdom were given to the churches. Okay, well, what about, uh, you know, another church ten years later? yes. What about another church 100 years later? Yes. What about the churches now? Yes. I want you to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the churches. I want the church, the universal church across the earth, in every time and age and hour and tribe and tongue, I want the church of Jesus Christ to pay attention to these words. They have great value. Hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the churches. Next, part F, to him who overcomes. Again, I'm, in this section, I'm giving you the phrases that show up again and again. They show up in all of the letters, all seven of them. The universal phrases, the ones that are used all seven times. But not every uh, phrase is used um, in every letter. Not every uh, exhortation, not every encouragement, not every rebuke. There are a lot of things that were uh, distinguished and unique, but there were some things that were said every time to every church. And I think we're supposed to pay uh, special attention to those. So again, here's this phrase, to him who overcomes. Now, Jesus, to all seven churches, he makes a really clear um, if this, then this statement. It's a a clear two plus two kind of a, a, a clause here. He says, if you overcome, then I've got some stuff that's gonna happen to you that's gonna be really good. But the opposite is also the true. Uh, is also the truth. If you don't overcome, you don't get the good stuff that's about to happen, and actually you're going to get all the bad stuff that I just got done telling you about is going to happen to you if you don't overcome. Jesus is giving this exhortation, and it, it really it, it speaks a number of things to us. One, to him who overcomes communicates it's possible to overcome. These churches could overcome. The individuals and the congregation as a whole, they could overcome. Two, It's Jesus' expectation that they would. It's not just like, I don't know if you guys are going to make it or not. He's saying, I want to give you the promises of what you'll receive when you overcome, but I also want to tell you, it is an if statement. It is up to you. But my expectation is that we see you through this. I will empower you. Jesus isn't saying, if you overcome, like it's impossible and maybe possibly one of you might. It's the total opposite. He's giving the exhortation so as to empower them to overcome, and he wants to see them through the process. Next, it is not automatic. Overcoming and and being saved are not the same. The concept of overcoming is going to take effort and energy. The difference between the person who is in the track meet and the person who sits in the stands at the track meet is a very wild difference. Those two people are doing something completely different. One is clapping and the other is overcoming. Overcoming hurdles, overcoming you know, uh, leg pain, overcoming muscle cramps, over- overcoming, overcoming. And another person's going, cool, you're overcoming, high five. Let's do more than, o- than high five, okay? To be those that overcome. But it's not automatic. 
Another, another point I just want to make here is we'll uh, kind of transition, I think, to the next section. Yeah, is that the particulars of overcoming were specific. Jesus doesn't just give the term to him who overcomes and leave the word overcome in a general sense like, you know, just overcome, whatever that means. Hard stuff. Overcome hard stuff. If you overcome hard stuff, you're good to go. He gives specific scenarios to each church. And he says, to the church of Pergamum, if you overcome these three things, if you overcome these specific things, then I'll reward you. But the things that he tells Pergamum to overcome are different than the things that he tells Laodicea to overcome. And things that are different that he tells Sardis to overcome and Thyatira to overcome. He gives specific things. All right, let's go to the next section here, part three, I believe. Yeah, identifying the seven churches. Now, I'm just going to go through this quickly. I'm going to go through this part and the next part fairly quickly here. Here's my objective. There's a lot of information on these next few pages. My objective here is to try to give you more, really, a study resource for later. I don't think that you're going to be able to keep track of all these details just at a one-time read-through. But hopefully, it'll give you a little bit of a context for each one of these cities, each one of these churches, each one of these scenarios, so that each of the seven are different to you. You know, all of us know cities in America, and if you've spent any time in any of those cities, you could have an educated conversation with somebody, and it's not just that you've been to three big cities in Texas, Austin, Houston, and San Antonio. You know, they're all the same. Not if you've been there. You've been there, you can tell difference. I don't know, San Antonio's got the river walk, you know, and, and Houston's just off the coast, you know, and it's a port city, and, you know, you got Austin, well, that's the capital, and, you know, it's got a kind of keep Austin weird vibe going about it. And, I mean, you can talk about these cities as unique cities as opposed to, you know, Texas cities. They're all the same, because they're not. I want to try to give you a little bit of a feel for each of these seven, and again, it's going to be difficult for you to just walk out of here tonight a professional at all seven of these cities, but at least it'll give you some, some context to get a, a bit of a, oh, okay, I could see, yeah, that one makes sense, and it, it's helpful probably to go back through this looking at a map so that you're actually looking at where the seven cities are so you can kind of put a few things together, but I'm just going to go rather quickly here. Ephesus. Ephesus was known... Uh, for being the church that had forsaken their first love. This was how Jesus was identifying them. This is also what the churches, you know, the churches hear what the Spirit of the Lord says to the churches, and all the churches are getting the different letters, and they're like, what was Ephesus all about? Man, they've forsaken their first love. That's a bad deal. What else? They were also known for historic revival. The greatest revival in the New Testament occurred in Ephesus. This is part of the reason that they were given such a harsh rebuke about forsaking their first love because they had fallen so far from their first love. The, the uh, church in Ephesus experienced the greatest revival that we have of any city uh, in the New Testament. It was a, a, a powerful uh, revival center. It wound up planting churches out of there. Revival spread from Ephesus. It was a power center. Also had the largest population, uh, perhaps, of any city known at that time. It was one of the largest, if not about 225,000 people, which in that time, that was beastly. I mean, that was enormous to have that many people. And it was also famed for the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in that hour. Uh, it was completed uh, in 550 B.C., and uh, this was kind of its claim to fame. Uh, that city, if you were, you know, a lost person anyway, it was known as the, the city of, of Artemis, the, uh, the temple of, of that Greek god, or goddess, rather. All right. Uh, Smyrna. So let's go to Smyrna here. Also in each one of these, I gave you the modern city, uh, the cities that are closest to it or that are the modern equivalent of that city uh, in modern day. So it's just included there in the, in the entry point. Um, so Smyrna. Smyrna had an interesting reputation identified as the church that would soon suffer a great persecution. This church was told by Jesus, Smyrna, you're about to go through it. It's about to be very hard for you, Smyrna. And that was one of the, the primary uh, definition points. A couple other details about Smyrna. It was inland. It was one of the most inland churches. And it was along a primary trade route. And because of that trade uh, and, and all that was coming through it, it wound up having a significant place of prominence in the region. So it was a very prominent city. Move on to Pergamum. Pergamum was a church perhaps most well-known for Jesus 
promising himself, Jesus, promising to come fight them. Oh my gosh, not the city, the church. You read it. It's there in Revelation 2, 12 through 17. Also, at the end of each entry paragraph, <clears throat> I gave you the verses to describe uh, the letter. So, or they give you the parameters of the letter. So if you want to frame a reference there. So Revelation 2, 12 through 17, this church is told by Jesus himself, if you don't repent, I'm going to fight you. I'm going to come fight you. That is so intense. Can you just imagine the different churches are all talking about what, what was going on in Smyrna? Jesus said he would fight them. Like, that's so intense. That is so intense. It was known as the city of Satan, where Satan's throne was. The temple of Zeus was located in Smyrna. And uh, it, it had uh, high pro a political influence. It's kind of a, not the capital, but kind of a capital-ish city, a very primary city. Out of there, governance went forth through the entire region. Uh, so, you know, rulings and decrees were made out of that city and then were affecting uh, all the rest of the region. So that just tells you just a little bit uh, about uh, uh, Pergamum. I'm sorry, that was Pergamum, not Smyrna. Pergamum. Okay, uh, Thyatira. Let's go to Thyatira here. Known as the one that was clearly distinguished with the false prophetess Jezebel. There was a real prophetess living in their midst in that time. Her name was Jezebel. She was operating with some of the same spirit of Jezebel and Ahab. Jezebel. This is a different Jezebel. And she was uh, alive in that hour, and uh, the real problem wasn't that she existed. The problem was how well-received she was by the church. And so they're being rebuked for receiving this false prophetess. Limitations due to location. This, was, uh, this city lived in the shadow of the other cities around it. This was probably, you hate to you know, be the city that's the least significant city in the region, but Everybody, somebody's got to be the last. So Thyatira was probably the least significant city in the region, okay? It had a textile industry and stuff, but it wasn't primarily known as like, you know, the real big trade city. Uh, that probably would have been more Pergamum. Uh, it wasn't known for having any, you know, major, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, buildings or anything constructed in it that it was well known for. Sardis, moving down. Sardis was identified Pri uh, prominently as the church that had fallen asleep and was about to die. Jesus said some tough words to these churches. He said, you have fallen asleep and you are about to die, church. That's a real big problem. This church had a strong military uh, stronghold in Asia Minor, Minor for the Roman uh, guard. And as a result of that, it's not just that that meant that they had a, a strong defense. It also meant all the stuff that comes along with a strong military that significantly impacted culture and life and, and, uh, and just protocol and family life. There was a lot that was impacted by there being that strong of a military force uh, there uh, in the city of Sardis. It was also uh, located along a primary trade route, so it had a, a strong economy. All right, go to Philadelphia. Philadelphia was primarily identified as the church that faithfully endured persecution. You want to be from Philly. I mean, in this hour, in all these scenarios and all that's been going on here, you want to be known as one who was from Philadelphia because it was one that held the line faithfully enduring great persecution. Philadelphia, the idea of uh, that city, you know, it's a common idea that we understand because of the uh, Philadelphia and America. It was a city of brotherly love, but the reason it was known as the city of brotherly love is because one of the kings who uh, was uh, alive in that hour, uh, just before this actually, and uh, he had been um, a king over Pergamum, he named the city of Philadelphia, he founded it, and he named it after his brother. And so he was doing it out of, out of affection for his brother. And so the idea, actually, of the city of brotherly love is actually traced back to Greek roots and to this pagan king who was naming the city after his bro that he loved. Just a little fun fact. Philadelphia, one of the most interesting things about it, it had fertile soil. It was in kind of the wake of, uh, of a, a volcano. So it had, um, you know, the rich soil uh, from previous eruptions and such. But it was also on a fault line and so it had frequent earthquakes. In fact, at one point, the city of Philadelphia had gone through such a bad earthquake, the city of the, uh, the empire of Rome 
forgave it of paying taxes, any citizen in the area of Philadelphia for five years in order to get the city back up and running because it had been so destroyed uh, by an earthquake. Ultimately, an earthquake in, uh, I think, 17 AD completely destroyed Philadelphia and it didn't exist anymore. There was also the city of Laodicea went down with that earthquake that happened in 17 AD. So you just, you know, it's tough when you build along a, a primary fault line and you wind up having earthquakes all the time. Just think of those Roman structures and those pillars and the pylons and things just falling down in the midst of an earthquake and it takes time to rebuild and it's, that's, a, that's a messy deal. Finally, moving on to Laodicea. Known and gained a long reputation. Even now, you can already think, where is this going? You already know what's about to be said. Because the church of Laodicea got such a bad reputation, understandably, got such a bad reputation, not just in that hour, but all throughout human history, as being the lukewarm church that Jesus was about to spit out of his mouth, the one that received the heaviest, most harsh rebuke, the most se severe rebuke out of the mouth of Jesus. Really intense. All right, well, let's move on here. So that's just kind of a little bit of the, what was going on in just the city? What was a little bit of the context of each one of these, uh, uh, these cities? Now I want to give you the unique situation that Jesus addresses when he says, I know your deeds, okay? Top of page seven. I know your deeds, Ephesus. Your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and you've found them false. Jesus saying of Ephesus, I know your deeds and you've got a good long list of deeds that I really like. His uh, know the deeds of Smyrna. I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. I know the slander of those that they say they are Jews, but they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. I know that you put up with these difficulties, Smyrna. I see your afflictions. I see your deeds. Pergamum, the persecution in Pergamum. I know where you live, Pergamum where Satan has his throne. But you did not renounce me, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Where Satan lives. This is Jesus. Jesus. Identifying, I know where you live. Satan's house. Satan's hometown on earth. Where he has his throne and his home. I know where you live. You guys, you've got it tough, Smyrna. I know your deeds. Reality about... Uh, I'm sorry, not Smyrna. That was uh, Pergamum. Uh, so I know your, your situation, Pergamum. Let's move on to Thyatira. I know your deeds, Thyatira. Your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. I know that you are now doing more than you did at first. That's kick butt. I like it. Good job. But that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. <coughs> this is somebody in the church. This uh, uh, Jezebel was in the church, leading people astray. It's so intense. You just think about this. This is one of the things that, that Jesus is saying that he knows about this church. I know you've let that really evil gal Jezebel not repent. You haven't kicked her out. I've given her a chance to repent. She's leading you guys into all sorts of mess and nonsense and leading you away from me. And I can't believe you continue to put up with her in your meetings. I'm so ticked about it. You guys got to get with it. The reputation of Sardis. I know your deeds. Speaking of Sardis, you have a reputation. We all know what a reputation is. It's what people think. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. It's how we're seen. It's how we're viewed. It's how we carry ourselves. It's what our t-shirt says. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You are a dead church. Now, everybody thinks you're alive and you think you're alive. You're dead. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yet, you have a few people that have not soiled their clothes. As a whole, you're a dead church. But I see the 17 people in your midst that still love me. I know everybody by name. I know all of them. You have a few people that have not soiled their clothes. They've not given in to your practices and your ways. But you as a church, you think you're alive. People think you're alive. I know the truth about you. You're dead. These are tough words coming out of the Son of God's mouth. It's so intense. The deeds of Philadelphia. I know your deeds. And I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut, Philly. I know you have little strength. 
yet you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Philadelphia was being presented with a new opportunity and was going to be given an opportunity to be able to advance the kingdom in some wild ways and be one of those revival centers. And in part, because of the way that Philadelphia had responded to the intense, the uh, severe persecution that had happened, he says, but I see you. Even though you've got little strength, even though you're just a little thing, I've seen you. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. You've stayed true to me. I see it. So while others, while, you know, the church over there, Sardis, they've got a reputation in the region of being awesome. They're dead. You have no reputation at all. You're too small to even have a reputation. You have totally little strength. I see you. You're alive. I see you. I know you. You've not denied my name, and I love it. Laodicea, I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So intense. They were lukewarm, compromising, yet still religious. Jesus was preparing to disown them. He had nothing further to contribute to their, to their context. Most of the other churches, he at least said some other stuff. He didn't say anything but bad things to Laodicea. Just bad things. Okay. Well, that should get us started then. Let's break up into groups. So, uh, so the uh, question is that the two statement or the twofold statement to he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then uh, the second part is to he who overcomes. So both of these are kind of provoking statements. What do we do with those? Um, I'll give you just a, a little snippet on it, but we're going to spend a whole session answering that question. Uh, so we've got a whole session planned in just a few weeks um, that I, I think I, I called it, you know, lessons to the church today or something like that, pulling from those two uh, statements and thoughts. I would think that uh, just the, the simplest answer is not at all a simple response. It's a, uh, it's a very thought out heart posture before the Lord response. But I would say, go identify the things that the Lord was pinpointing. The things that he says, if you overcome these things, and then make a list of the things that he said, if you listen to what the Spirit is saying on these points, identify all of those and begin to get that stuff into your prayer life. Begin going, Lord, help me, search me. How am I doing on this, this particular issue? You know, How am I doing on being a bold witness for you? Oh, God, help me, strengthen me that I would be, you know? You know, how am, I be, how am I doing, Lord, on this uh, area of giving in to the compromise of the culture around me? Oh, Lord, help me, strengthen me. Because Jesus wants to reward us, but he's not going to reward you for showing up. He's not going to reward you, you know, just because you didn't die yesterday. He's going to reward you for overcoming. He's going to give you more if you pay attention to what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. These are exhortations. These are encouragements to live differently, to live above the fray, to, to walk in a, in a way that is pleasing to him. And we don't get those rewards and we don't get that, that uh, well done, good and faithful servant just because we got up in the morning. So it's got to be an intentional response to what it is that Jesus is saying. So I would say camp out in these letters. I, you know, um, it's a known thing that the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is a great passage of scripture for believers to just kind of have written on their heart all their days. I, I would put up the letters to the, the seven churches, Matthew, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 2 and 3, in that same sort of a category, because these are, this is Jesus making great intentionality to point out stuff he really cares about, stuff that he really says matters, and that has tremendous impact at the end of the age. So um, hopefully that's helpful there. Okay, Andy, let's go to you if we can. So I think if I understand the question right, maybe correct me if I didn't, is uh, what do I think about the concept that these seven messages were written to seven actual churches with a, with a real address and a, a time in history, but that those messages carry beyond that uh, throughout history into the end of the age and then also specifically the idea of there being different time frames uh, that some have said, hey, this was the time frame of Pergamum, 
This was the, the hour of the church. This 30-year period was the hour of you know, Thyatira that Jesus was writing about in, the, in Revelation. I think that these letters have been timeless in their, uh, in their impact and that any believer that would have an ear to hear what the Spirit of the Lord says to the church could learn greatly and glean and be impacted no matter what hour of human history. I think that probably there are some, <clears throat> some similarities that could be documented throughout history of, well, this hour in the church, you know, really seemed to reflect this aspect of what was being written about in Revelation 2 to the church of Pergamum. But I also don't think that in any way Jesus was assigning seven time periods of, of church history ending in Laodicea. Like, the first 350 years is, you know, Ephesus years. And the next 350 years of church history is the, you know, I don't think that at all. Um, but I do think that there have been similarities, but also the similarities have been um, those that have made those points strong. And if you don't know what we're talking about, there are theologians that have definitely dogmatically set periods of time in history that were assigned to, this is, Jesus was primarily writing to the church of this you know, period of time and then to this period of time. And I don't think that they're being fully honest with the universal church on the earth. I think that they were probably more defining the trends that were occurring in a particular part of geography and not necessarily to the trends of the church across the planet. So I, I think that those broad stroke uh, definitions to get dogmatic about it and be like, this is what that meant, as opposed to going, seems like there were some similarities in you know, in the 1400s and, you know, in 300, you know, uh, uh, A.D. And to see the similarities, I'm on fully on board with. To dogmatically define each of these uh, uh, letters as being um, a portion to a specific time frame in church history, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's probably going a little too far. But I think to see the similarities is helpful. Uh, just like we can see the similarities even now, we might even have churches in Arlington that we might define more as a Pergamum church or a Sardis church. And I think even us, you know, whatever congregation you're a part of, I think it would be helpful to see the strengths and the weaknesses that could possibly be attributed to your church and go both the strengths and the weaknesses and go, wow, if we're too much like Thyatira in that way, that's not a good thing. But if we're a lot like Philadelphia in that way, that's a good thing. So I, I think that there's lessons to be learned as opposed to seven periods of uh, church history. So, um, yes, So uh, the question is related to Satan's throne, uh, which was described. Um, so the, the question is uh, twofold. Was there any other time or reference in the Bible uh, th that was defining a city or a church or context or whatever to being Satan's throne? That was the first question or one of them. And then the second is, what does it mean uh, that this city was described as uh, the place where Satan had his throne? Um, so the, uh, the question related to the, um, uh, the other references in Scripture, there aren't any. Uh, so there aren't any other references um, in any sort of direct sense. And the reason I say direct sense is there might be some, um, uh, you know, allusion to somewhere that I'm not tracking with. But as far as any sort of direct go to Bible Gateway and search for anything, it's nothing, there's nothing like that where there was any other city that was described as Satan's throne. So it's, it's unique to the book of Revelation and uh, to this uh, specific context. So the second thing is, what does it mean? Um, I think it means it was Satan's throne. Uh, so in, in the most um, uh, um, connect the dots sort of a way, Zeus was celebrated as the king of the gods, and the, uh, the city of worship um, where Zeus's uh, uh, temple was, which would then have been kind of like the primary temple in all of Greece, uh, was located in this city. And what, what city are we in here? Is this um, Pergamum? Pergamum. Yeah, so the city of Pergamum, um, yeah, where Satan's throne was. See, this is also where Zeus's temple was built. Again, Zeus wasn't just a god. He was viewed as the king of the gods. So he is the primary point of worship uh, that is of a false worship. Now, we just want to connect the dots here in the spirit realm. When people who were created in God's image, lost or saved, 
when people worship stuff, they're giving power to the stuff they're worshiping. And we may not like that. We may think that's weird. But they are empowering that which they worship because it's not just a, a, a uh, lifeless thing. There's a demon behind it. I mean, that's why it's attracting worship. There's demons, and they were attract, uh, uh, attached to all of these uh, uh, mythology and all the different gods. And so I think that actually Zeus was Satan. And I think that, that Satan was getting significant worship in the city of Pergamum. And I think he had his greatest stronghold in the earth in that hour. And uh, I also think that his, you know, um, we know that Jerusalem is where God's throne is and where Jesus is going to set up camp. If Jesus wanted to, he's not going to, but if Jesus wanted to move his throne from Jerusalem to Dallas, he's got permission to do that. He could do it. Okay, God can put his throne wherever God wants to put his throne. Satan could move his throne. Satan's throne in that hour was absolutely in Pergamum, and, and I don't think that's a definition of his throne being indefinitely there for the rest of the ages. Where is he being most worshipped? Where is he being most set up? We actually know the throne is going to move to Jerusalem at the end of the age because that's where the Antichrist is going to set himself up in God's temple and say, I am God, worship me, and an entire global worship movement of the Antichrist and of Satan will be then pointed towards Jerusalem. So the throne of Satan will get moved to Jerusalem in the future. Uh, so I think that in the hour that we're reading about here, it's where Satan's stronghold was and his actual throne from which he would rule uh, on the earth. So interesting and uh, good question. Last question. Yeah, great question. So um, the question breaks down to the term overcoming, especially, well, in the book of Revelation, but really anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, the term overcoming in these contexts uh, and the concept of salvation, of being someone that gave our life to the Lord, uh, are those two the same? How do those uh, differentiate? Um, so the, we have a very um, finite and false view of our relationship with God, okay? We have been trained to believe, and it is false, we've been trained to believe that the entirety of life is about going to heaven or hell with a passport called salvation. And as long as you prayed the prayer, you get your passport stamped, and now your eternal destiny is in heaven and instead of, instead of hell. That's crazy. The entirety of God's desire for mankind, the primary commandment, for humans, lost and saved, is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the purpose of humanity, not pray a prayer. That is the dumbest thing ever. The idea that we were created to pray a prayer and therefore get our passport stamped, and now it's over, and now no matter what we do, no matter how we live, no matter what decisions we make, we've got our passport stamped and we're going to heaven. You can't find that anywhere in the New Testament. The concept of, of being a follower of Jesus is, we follow him today, and we follow him tomorrow, and we follow him again next week, and we follow him again 10 years ago, or 10 years from now. We're followers of the Lamb. We're those that are in relationship. The concept, the very term salvation that we use, the idea, we don't even think of its contextual context, uh, context in the Word, and, and that is that the idea was being saved from an enemy, okay? So you're a city, okay? And you're going, oh my goodness, we need to be saved from this, this enemy army that's going to come and totally destroy us. And then a neighboring uh, city that's, you know, got your back that you're in allied forces with, they show up and they save you. They save you from the enemy army that's coming to breach your walls. You are saved. And hopefully you're friends with them forever. But if you wind up in another war just down the road and you don't get saved again... In that moment, if you don't have that same moment of salvation from somebody breaking in, some power coming, you're in deep doo-doo the day you lose the war, even though you were in great standing, you know, three years ago when there was an enemy army encamped against you. That's the term that's being used that Jesus and the New Testament authors are playing off of, the concept of saved. We've made it this spiritual term that it, it doesn't have foundation. The foundation of the term is being saved, not saved once, not 
I, I prayed a prayer one time. I made a decision one time. It's that I'm in a relationship with the Savior. I'm in a relationship with the saving one. Salvation is an active relationship with God. It's not a moment in time that we get our passport stamped. So Jesus is saying to these believers, he's saying, he's, and specifically this uh, uh, terminology of overcoming, these are promises not even related to whether they're saved or not. It's related to the rewards he's going to give them in heaven if they overcome these specific obstacles. And so sometimes you're, you're reading like actually other places in Revelation when it's talking about those that overcame the Antichrist. You know, they, they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the power of their testimony. That's actually very much talking about lost and saved because it's saying that they didn't give in to Satan. They didn't worship the beast. They didn't take the mark of the beast. They like held the line. But in this context here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, each one of these promises related to the overcomers is saying, listen, if you press through these specific difficulties, I'm going to give you these specific eternal rewards in heaven. And we're going to spend a whole session on the concept of eternal rewards and how eternal rewards is distinct. It is on top of the subject of are you going to heaven or not? Not everybody who goes to heaven is going to receive the exact same reality and inheritance for the rest of their life. There's probably 200 verses that say just the opposite, that we're going to receive an inheritance depending on the way that we interacted with God and our faithfulness in this hour. And there will be many who are in the kingdom in the coming age who are called least. They are called least in the kingdom. And there will be many who escape as though through flames and enter into the next age, but they got there barely. Well, the guy who gets there barely and the one that overcame and overcame and sowed themselves faithfully and, and took word, it took heed to the words, he who has an ear, pay attention to what I'm saying, you'll be better off. He who overcomes, the ones that did all that, their eternal reality looks very different. They're both in heaven. I mean, the worst place in heaven is still a great place to be. But their reality forever looks very differently based off of the responsiveness of their heart because that's how the Lord gauges things. Worship team, you can come on up. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.